You are listening to the Life Community Church Sermon Podcast. Life Community is a church for the city, making much about the name of Christ. This podcast is available through all major platforms, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. If you enjoy and are challenged by our teaching, we invite you to subscribe to the channel on whatever platform you choose as we seek to anchor ourselves to the unchanging truth of God's Word together. Thanks for listening. a series on prayer. It won't be our last conversation of prayer. Uh, We will come back to the idea and the posture of prayer continuously in this year. We'll have guest speakers around it. Uh, We're not leaving this value of prayer. It's going to be our heart for this year. And one of the things that we have done as a staff is we've committed ourselves to a certain amount of hours a week in prayer over you guys, over our vision, over our church. And today I'm coming to you to challenge you in the same way. Uh, We want to find greater prayer within our congregation. Not that you are not praying. Sorry, my mic is loose here. But we want to make a greater effort to pray as a congregation together. And so what we're doing is we're challenging you to come to our building and pray for 30 minutes, to look at our prayer tags, to look over them, to take them somewhere if you want to in here and pray over them. And so what we're going to do is we have eight spots for the next 12 weeks, and we're going to do this for every week of the year, that we're going to invite you to simply sign up, put your cell phone number, you get communication, a reminder that you have signed up for this week, you get a code for the door, and you can come in from 3 p.m. to 3 a.m., it doesn't matter, you can come in at any time at your schedule. Now, you may say, well, can't we just do that at home? Yes. Should you do that at home? Yes. Could you do it at home? Yes. But here's what I know. We need accountability in our rhythms. We need to create better boundaries in our lives. And sometimes committing ourselves and taking responsibility for things creates new avenues for God to work in our life. And so we're challenging you to sign up for those things, to come here. I know that 30 minutes may feel like a long time, but here's what I've always heard from people. You will never realize how rich and full those 30 minutes of prayer could possibly be. And sometimes in giving ourselves over to that, God rewards our obedience. And so we want you to come alongside of us. You can partner with us. You can sign up at the information desk, and we would like you to do that. And so as we close this series, we are going to look at this simple question of how do we pray? Right? It's a very simple question. Fundamentally, we might say, well, we just talk to God like we would in every other relationship. And that is fundamentally true. But Jesus takes some specific time to teach us how to pray, which means that there is a way to pray, and there's a way not to pray. And so let's listen to the words of Jesus here as he teaches us how to pray. And we'll find it in Matthew 6, the Gospel of Matthew 6, in chapter 6. We'll find it in verses 5 through 15. It'll be on the screen. You're welcome to join us there. You're welcome to open your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew or even through your phones. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogue and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, 
Do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Lord, we, we don't fully understand what these words mean. But Lord, we know that, that you have an intention for us in how we pray. And so Lord, I pray that your word would move in our hearts, it would convict us, it would move us to gladness and joy and conviction wherever you want it to, Lord. So, Lord, will you reveal to us more truth about yourself that we can live more fully for yourself, for you and you alone. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Jesus instructs us to pray in a way that we aren't hypocrites. Now, that word hypocrite is an interesting word. The world often throws that word around to describe Christians as a whole. That we are hypocrites, meaning that we say we love Jesus, but we don't actually live like we do. That we have this wonderful model, this Savior full of perfect love and justice and hope and peace, but we have an inability to behave like we love him. And look, I think that that is an honest critique. I think that we are hypocritical in some ways as Christians. And I think that those are very real issues that we need to consider in our life, that there are areas of unbelief in our life that cause us to walk unwisely. But yet it's not the reason why the world hates us or calls us a hypocrite. Your inability to behave like you desire, is not why the world hates you. Your inability to behave and love and live the way that Jesus is not the way, is not the reason the world hates you. Their hatred isn't towards you, it's, it's towards God. And Jesus reminds us in John 15, he says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me first. If the world hates you, know that it hated me first. If you are of the world, the world would love you, but you're not of the world. I have chosen you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. Your folly, your inability to live as Christ isn't why the world hates you. It's not why they see you as a hypocrite. It's that we believe there's a standard. It's that we believe that there is a way to live, that there is a way to love, that there is a way to behave. The world chooses to live by their own desires and their own agendas, as believers, we choose not to because we were purchased by the blood of Christ in which we do not live for ourselves but for the glory of God. They don't hate you. They are not insulting you. They are insulting God. They hate authority and submission to a different standard 
than themselves. They want to be God because you can't be a hypocrite. You can't be a hypocrite if you're the standard. Jesus isn't using that word in this way. Now, look, the accusations against us of being hypocritical doesn't excuse our disobedience. The fact that they don't really hate us, they really hate God, doesn't excuse our disobedience in some ways. We should be constantly putting to death what is sinful in us. And the world's accusations of, of our hypocritical nature actually should be met with humility, not defensiveness, because they're right. They're, they're right. And I think for some, that really prevents us from ever living out our Christian faith because we don't want to be called a hypocrite. It's a fear of ours. But what the world thinks of you does not matter. And it doesn't affect how God sees you. And so when Jesus is using the word hypocrite, he's not using it in this sense. But Jesus is saying, don't be stage performers. Don't make show of your prayers. Don't try to make other people believe things about you that aren't true. Part of the education we're getting from Jesus and how to pray is due to many in that time that are using prayer as an opportunity to flex their own skills, to show off their own eloquence, to impress people with their words and their righteousness and godliness. They're using prayer in a way to impress people to gain position or popularity. Now, I'm sure that we have been to different services and different events where somebody prayed and we left and we said, man, they can pray. That was an incredible prayer. And that's not wrong. It is wrong if we are the one praying and it is our heart that we are impressing people by the words. Jesus is saying, don't pray for performance. It's not a service you provide for somebody. It's not like you take your car to a mechanic and you might be impressed by the way that they fix your car, their professionalism, their, the, the speed in which they did those things. Prayer isn't a service that we perform for others to be impressed by. It's, it's not a place that we go and flex our lexicon. It isn't the practice ground for our tweets. It's your connection to a holy God. It's our connection to a holy God who saved us from our sin, who wants to be in relationship with you and I to know his grace, to know his love, to know his mercy, to know his forgiveness, and to know his glory. It is hypocritical to make it anything more than that. That's what it means to be hypocritical. Jesus says, if you're performing in your prayers for others, you have received a reward. What does he mean by that? It means that your reputation, the people's regard for you, your elevation in their eyes is your reward. And there is none to come to you from the Father. Because the truest reward in prayer is relationship with God. That is the reward. I want you to think about prayer this way. If you were having an honest, in-depth conversation with somebody about some serious things in your life, you were admitting wrong, you were seeking forgiveness, you were looking for help, and you're in a room with other people and you're talking to this person, who do you want to hear that conversation? The whole room or just the person you're expressing it with? Obviously, the answer is just the person. And what this means is that prayer is something to be done in private, because it's formative, it's shaping, it is for us, it's not for others. It is the place that we can be most honest about our sin, most vulnerable in our comments, and most needy in our request. 
It is a private conversation that is formative in our relationship with God. Now, look, the Scripture commands us to pray together. There is commands to pray in public. But the most formative practice of prayer is done alone, with God as the only audience. And so Jesus commends them to to have a posture of prayer like this, and then he shows them how to pray, a, a prayer that we call the Lord's Prayer. These are very common words that we've said before. Uh, I think there are lots of ways that you could break this prayer down. We're going to look at five different elements today, five truths that we can learn here in how to pray. And so Jesus opens up with this very famous line, our Father in heaven. Or if you're old school, right, there's an art in that, our Father who arts in heaven. Uh, This is a declaration of position, of relationship. I want you to think about it this way. When you have a conversation with somebody, we often use title or position to communicate the nature of that relationship. And so if you're a daughter or if you're a son, you might simply say, hey, mom. Mom is a code word that means something. Mom means you're the person who gave birth to me. Or That may not be the case. You are the person that raised me. And you may or may not have loved me well. But I respect you enough to convey to the world the significance of our relationship. Right? It's easier to say mom than all of that. And so these titles communicate the nature of your relationship. But they also communicate something about authority. And so as a father, you may have someday or may someday in the future say something like this. Now look, son. Now look, son. And you know what, fellas? What were you thinking in that? One word conveyed who and who or who does not have authority. One word informed us on authority. And so what Jesus is teaching us here is that we need to remind ourselves of who we are of who we are and who holds authority in our relationship. That we have a father implying somebody with an intimate relationship with us and one who holds authority over us. But Jesus qualifies it here with something else. Our father in heaven. Our father in heaven. One who is in heaven. We should never confuse God, our father in heaven, with our fathers on earth. We might see a day in our lives where we outgrow our relationship for our, with our Father, that we're, we become independent of the relationship that we have with our Father, or we're no longer needy in that relationship. We will even lose our fathers on this earth. But that is not the case with our Father in heaven. He will never be equal with any of our earthly fathers, he is not one who we will outgrow his authority. Our father is not on earth. He is over us. And he will never stop being our authority. He will never cease to be our father. And he will never leave us. He will never leave us. And so for those of us with faith in Christ, we call God our father. He's our father. And we are his children And he desires relationship with us. And he alone is the authority. Now look, the character of your earthly fathers may leave you lacking. 
your relationships with your father on this earth are all over the map here. And many find the term father to leave them wanting. That maybe you have a father who is absent or passive or even abusive, who has done more good or more harm than good in your life. But listen, our father is not like him. He's not like him. Like our father's name is to be hallowed. Hallowed. To be declared holy. Reverent. He is to be revered as one without blemish. One who has zero stain on his character. Who is perfect in love and justice and peace and goodness and forgiveness. We can delight and rejoice that we have a father. We can rejoice and delight in what Jesus teaches us here. That we know and remember We have a Father who stands above us as supreme and holy, who created us for a relationship with Him, who holds us, and we can submit to Him knowing that we can trust in His character and we can trust in His plan. You know, sometimes we might say or see God as our best friend. And certainly, God manifests himself to us in a friendly way, that he is for us, he is with us, not for our own sake, but for his glory. But it would be a mistake to confuse him as our best friend. Like, he's our father. He keeps us, and he holds the universe together by the word of his power. He is to be hallowed and revered. Now, we are to enjoy our relationship with him, but we never lose sight of who he is. We never lose sight of who he is. Now, on earth, sometimes we might use flattery. We might use flattery to get the things that we want. In our lives, some of you might have been guilty of calling a parent and saying something like this. Hey, mommy, I love you. I want to thank you for all the ways that you've cared for me. And you know the response that your mother gave to you immediately after that. What did she say? She said, well, what do you want? Isn't that not true? What do we want? What do you want? Sometimes we appeal to our relationships and their authority with flattery to get what we want. But Jesus doesn't teach us that. Jesus commends us to remember the truth of who God is that we might want what he wants. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What Jesus is teaching us He's teaching us that that all that we want on this earth pales, friend. It pales in comparison to the ever-coming kingdom of God. This is primary. It's essential. It's necessary for our joy and flourishing. That all of those postures aren't about us getting what we want but more of God having his way in us and through us. That God would remake the world to reflect his character his values, his ethic, his heart in every way, by all means necessary, just like it is being done perfectly in heaven right now. And so, friends, I, this may sound morbid to you, but there will never be anything better than you, in your life than being with God. There will be nothing greater in your life than you being in the presence of God. And until he calls us there, It has to be his kingdom coming. It has to be his will done here. 
and why we wait for that kingdom and why we mature and as we partner with God to bring more of his value and more of his ethic and more of his kingdom here and how we live and how we love, let us ask the Lord to give us what we need. Jesus doesn't pray here, God, fill up my coffers so that I'm never in struggle, that I'm never in want. Now, what does he pray? Lord, give us this day our daily bread. Father, just this day, just this day, let me have enough to survive and advance your kingdom another day. It's a prayer that says that my survival, my happiness, my comfort is far less than you being known and elevated in the world and working in me and through me for that cause and that cause alone. God's kingdom must and will be always more important than our kingdoms, more than important than our needs, more important than our desires. But in this line, we also know this, we, we rejoice in this, that our God isn't distant from our everyday activities, but he is interested in our daily lives, that he cares about everyday things. And we should pray to him believing such that God does care about the small, minute things of our lives. And so then in this prayer, Jesus turns from what is the most basic and fundamental need in our survival to the most fundamental need in our spiritual life. Forgiveness. Jesus is saying here, he's not saying that what you need most in this life is to love yourself better. What you need life in this life is to get a better idea of what you're supposed to do or to have less streak or stress in your life. What he is saying is that what is most important is that you're forgiven. That your sins are forgiven by God. Jesus uses the word debts here. Debts is a word that means sin. It signifies one who is in debt, one who has broken the law of God and sits in debt of God's divine justice. And so look, when we come to faith, when we trust in Jesus, we, we experience a once and forever pardon for our sins an undeserved forgiveness for our sins through the blood of Christ. Yet Jesus teaches us here that repentance is lifelong. But look, it's not about justification, meaning this. We don't have to pray for forgiveness for every measure of sin in our lives in order to be saved. No, this is about sanctification. This meaning this is about you growing and maturing and becoming more like the sun, more mature, more flourishing in our life, more unity in our life. Seeking daily forgiveness fuels our growth because it means that we are constantly aware and conscious of the ways that we have fallen short of God's image and how we reflect it into the world. It's an honest admission to our Creator that we know that anything less than perfection is sin. That there will never be a day that we don't need forgiveness. We seek his forgiveness. In seeking his forgiveness, it reminds us of how graceful and merciful and loving it is. He is to us. It keeps us from thinking too highly of ourselves. 
But forgiveness also creates flourishing and unity in our relationships. Because as one who is always experiencing forgiveness and knowing forgiveness from God, it should flow outward from us towards those who sin against us. And look, Jesus, like he pulls no punches here. Like he says, if you are unwilling to forgive the trespasses of those who have sinned against you, then your father is unwilling to forgive you. If we are unwilling to forgive others who have sinned against us, our father is unwilling to forgive us. That is a hard truth. That is a hard truth. We struggle with that. Why is that true? It's because in our lack of forgiveness for others, we make a mockery of the forgiveness that God has given to us. We have revealed that we have forgotten how deeply condemned we were and how broken we are. Unforgiveness destroys God's creation. It pushes us away from one, other, other, one another and pushes us away from God. And so look, whether, we're, whether we in this room can hear this or not, it's not up to me. But just gently, I just want to convey this. The truth is, is that the most significant issues in our life do not lie outside of us, but within us. The scripture conveys over and over and over again that there is a brokenness to us, that there is a bend in us towards sin and selfishness, and those same pages compel to us. That same scripture enlightens us to the fallen journey of the humanity in hiding their sin, denying their sin, and blaming others for their sin. A humanity who is constantly seeking to self-preserve meaning to protect our own status, to protect our reputations, to protect our livelihoods. Our lives are full of hardships and struggles, of successes and frustrations. Our weeks, our months can grind us. They can wear us down. They can disappoint us. And what proves to be the most natural disposition of our human hearts is to put a face to our problems, to blame someone or something outside of ourselves for the, all the dissatisfaction and all the lacking that we find within, rather than to admit our own fallenness and fault in front of a holy God and in front of others as we seek forgiveness. So listen, we are quick to blame others. We are quick to point out flaws in every area of our life. We're quick to point out flaws in our jobs, in our people, in our, in our homes, in our churches, in each other. We are quicker still to deem them as responsible for our struggles and lacking in our life. But all that serves to do is jade us. All that serves to do is rob us from God's joy and love being present in our life. Our lack of, for, un, our lack of forgiveness towards others creates miserable people who wallow in unforgiveness and blame everyone for their issues. Look, there is no place that we can hide from sin. No place that we can hide to sin. Which means there will never be a place or relationship that doesn't disappoint you or have flaws in it. There are no perfect people. There is no perfect place. There is no perfect church. 
Why? Because wherever we are, there we are. Wherever we are, there we are. And we bring with us baggage. We bring with us all of our fallenness and all of our sin. And if we're not transparent with God about the ways that we fall short, if we're not honest with him about our own issues, if we aren't seeking his forgiveness always, we will forget that the central ingredient in my problems is me. And we will blame everyone, and we will withhold forgiveness, and we will see ourselves as the victim. Friends, you're not the victim. The true victim died on the cross so you could live. You're not the victim. Forgiveness is necessary. It is necessary because we cannot live and flourish without it. Lastly, Jesus teaches us to, pr to pray in a way that God would deliver us from walking into scenarios that would be far beyond our ability to handle. That God would give us a discernment to know the temptations that lay ahead of us and that God would give us the wisdom to not walk into them and to protect us from the evil one who is constantly seeking to steal, kill, and destroy us. That we would pray that God would give me discernment. Lord, can I handle this? Is this wise for me to do this? Is this wise for me to walk in this way? And then lastly, what, what is not in the scripture is this doxology that was added later to our scripture. You might recognize it. It says, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Right? That was added later to the scripture. And it serves to us as a great reminder of what everything is about. It's about his kingdom. It's about his power. It's about his glory. And so this is how Jesus teaches us to pray to revere God and his authority, to understand the nature of our relationship, to want his kingdom most, to want his will most, and then to petition our needs to him that they may be met and that we are always seeking his forgiveness, always seeking forgiveness so that we may forgive others, that we can give it away, and that we are not walking into scenarios that are not good for us, that are not wise for us, that give room for the enemy to devour us. And so look, it's, it's not like Christ is saying, I want you to pray this always. Like this is the only prayer that you can pray. But Jesus is saying, these are important things to think about. These are important things to pray. It is for your good to pray like this. It's for God's glory to pray like these, this. But more importantly, these are truths that we can pray. We can pray. And we can pray them only because the Son has intervened on our behalf. That he has died for our sin. That he has become a ransom for our sin. That he has redeemed us to new life. It is only through the atonement of Christ that we can pray these words, that we can boldly come before the throne of God, that we can be restored in right relationship with God himself. And so to end our time together, there is no better way to celebrate that 
than coming around the table of communion to reflect on God, his goodness, his sacrifice, and his love. And so it is because of the risen Christ. It is because of the risen Christ that we can join together as a people that are broken and hopeful. Believers who seek to love what he loved, to live what he taught, to strive to be faithful to him in this, our time and place. It is in this meal, this meal of communion, that we remember Jesus, that we remember his promise. We remember the price that he paid for us. We remember what he did. We remember what he said. On the night before Jesus died, he took a loaf of bread, he gave thanks to it, and he broke it. And he said, take and eat. Take and eat. Whenever you do this, remember me. And after supper, Jesus took the cup and he poured it out saying, this is the new covenant. Remember me. And so today we do remember him. We remember his love, his friendship, his teaching, his dying, and his rising to life again. And it is in this meal, it is in this meal that we together proclaim a shared faith. A shared faith. And this is our proclamation. That Christ has died, Christ has risen, and that Christ will come again. Can we say that together? Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. The body of Christ is represented in the cracker. It's the bread of life. The lifeblood of Christ, the cup of blessing, represented in the, group, in the juice. These are the gifts of God for God's people, and we are thankful for these gifts. And so if you're in here and you are a believer, if you're in the family of God, if you have trusted in the Lord, this is our time to come together and celebrate what he's done for us. If you have not made a decision to follow Jesus, we are glad that you're here, but know this is for the family of God. And so let's spend a few moments exploring our hearts, seeking forgiveness where we need to, hollowing the name of God. And look, if we have wrong people in our life, if we are withholding forgiveness from people, then it is quite okay not to partake in the emblems. The scripture clearly indicates to us that we should set ourselves right in our relationships before we come around the table of communion as best as we can. And so let's be serious about that. The band is here. They're ready to play. They're going to play some music. You spend some time in prayer. And when you're ready, you take up the elements. But before we do that, let us together say the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sinned against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen.